This is Steve Addison for the Movements Podcast. Podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Today we'll hear from David Watson, catalyst for church planting movements, author of Contagious Discipleship. David will share the story of his journey with disciple-making movements. Uh, we have an external audit done on our ministry every five years. We do internal audits every year to verify our numbers internally, and then every five years we invite uh, external audits. And our numbers are a little different. We don't accumulate numbers from year to year. We recount every year. So if we planted 10,000 churches this year, but we lost 5,000, we, we report we have 5,000 churches. So that's, uh, that's the process that we use in, in keeping our statistics. And we actually have three full-time people globally that that's all they do is uh, check, on, check on our statistics. And you can imagine uh, some of the places we work in are very difficult. We don't, we don't really work in any easy places. Uh, all of our work is in restricted access countries. All of our work is found uh, in places where Christians are martyred. On our teams alone, in the last uh, six years, we've had 217 people martyred. And right now, we have 30 team members missing in Syria since ISIS took over, and we still don't know uh, whether they are alive or not. So I'd ask you to continue to pray for our teams that are working inside these war areas. And, And we're always there because chaos is opportunity to share the gospel. Whether it's in a family's life here in Australia who is going through chaos, it's an opportunity. Or whether it's a nation that is ripped apart by war, by leaders who do not care about the people, those are opportunities for us to come in to love them first, to show them why we love them, and to help them discover God the way we have. And that, that's an important part of the message that we take globally everywhere we go. Um, you know, I grew up kind of different than most people, I guess. I had a loving mother and a loving father. Uh, I didn't have a loving sister, though. She didn't like me at all. <laughs> Mostly because she was a year behind me in school, and I made straight A's, and she didn't. So uh, every time she would go into a class, they all knew David, and then they'd go, oh, you're Donna, okay, and, and go from there. So it was, it was hard for her to, to follow me through, through uh, 11 years of her schooling. <laughs> and, and so, uh, but my father was uh, the child of Jehovah Witness pastors. His mother and father were Jehovah Witness pastors, and they were very, very strict. And my mother uh, was, the, was a child of a a German immigrant who was Lutheran, and a Southern Baptist deacon, of all things. So I kind of grew up in a, in a mixed bag of things, a father who, who wanted nothing to do with church, but he, he adored my mom, and so he would go sit in church with her, and as soon as it, the prayer was said, boom, he was out. But he never went to anything special, never went to Bible study. But there's a good ending to this. Um, the month before he died, he, he gave his life to Christ. And it was amazing because I was working in China at that time, got, got called from the physician that, hey, David, your father is dying fast. If you, you're not going to make it. And I jumped on a plane and got all the way back to the U.S., didn't know which hospital he was going to be in, so I had to, had to find out which hospital. And I got there one hour before he died. 
And he regained consciousness during that hour, and we talked. And he talked about the Lord. And when he died, the, the, the hospital staff started weeping. And he'd been in the hospital for about uh, a month. And, and they just said, we've never had anyone come in our hospital as a patient and change the hospital. Said he was always concerned about his fellow people. He was a, it was a veteran's hospital. He was always concerned about the staff. And, and I was in the room when he died. And I was in the room when they tried to revive him. And, and uh, doctors and nurses were crying when he passed away. So my Lord, uh, my Lord did a, an amazing thing in my father. And, and blessed our family in a tremendous way during that time. So I grew up in going to a Baptist church. Uh, my mother was the, was the spiritual head of our household, and as is the case in many families, and, and uh, we were attenders. But I really didn't reach a commitment to Christ and, until my college years. I, I went to church, and I was, a, I was a good Christian. I was a good Christian boy, but uh, really did not get to be a, a committed believer until I was in college. And I really grew up having only two aspirations. I wanted to be an engineer, and I wanted to be a military officer. And that's what I was doing when I made the fatal mistake of falling in love with a young lady. And she was on staff at a first Baptist church. I mean, I was getting it from every side. And we will be married 43 years on June 2nd, so we've known each other quite a while. But what you don't know is that I met her on the phone. We spent a week talking on the phone before we ever met face to face. And when she came to meet me face to face, I was preaching a revival service to a youth group. And she walked in. I thought she was one of the youth. And I said, wow, that's a... I, I started editing in my head what I should say about her. <laughs> and, but she was hot, you know. <laughs> And I said, I wonder who that is. And, of course, after the service, she came in and introduced herself. I said, you know, the whole time I was talking to her phone, I said, Lord, I don't know what this woman looks like, but I already love her. And 13 days later, we were engaged. And three months later, we were married. And that's, that's, that's the story. We've lived in, we lived in 39 houses and five countries and 17 cities. And we just keep serving the Lord. Now, I married up. What did you, what did you call that day that I married yeah, had, yeah, batting above your average. My wife, has, my wife has five earned university degrees, two masters, two doctorates, and she's a practicing attorney, and she supports my mission habit. <laughs> and, and people say, we have such a great marriage because I've been gone half of it. And, and literally, for most of our marriage, I, I, you know, I go in and places and get arrested. I go in places, get stuck behind war lines. I go in places, and, and you know, I'd be, I'm stuck there. But when I leave, there were churches and, and whatever situation I found myself. But I, I went to a seminary. I went to a very traditional Southern Baptist seminary. I went to a, two of those, as a matter of fact. I've taught seminary. I learned and taught every evangelism program you can imagine. Every single one of them, whether it was EE or Faith or Win or the Roman Road or, you know, Aunt Joe's story, you know, whatever you went, we learned it. And I tried teaching it. And, and Jan and I, when, when we realized that the Lord was moving us overseas, uh, we said, wait, well, we better start churches here. So we started five churches in North America. We moved to, to work in South China, and, and there as freshman missionaries learning language. We helped assist start two more churches. And then we went as independent 
missionaries to Malaysia. Independent in the sense we didn't have a team. We were by ourselves because the country had stopped letting people come in who were going to be missionaries. But somehow we got a visa and, and we went in. And during our time there, uh, we spent three years in Malaysia. We saw 17 churches started. And that's where I got arrested and put in jail for eight weeks. And then expelled in 1989. And some of you know the, the story of Malaysia. There were 91 of us arrested at the same time. I was the only foreigner. All the others were, were Malaysians. <clears throat> I promise I don't drink when I drive, but I do drink when I talk. <laughs> uh, and we, we came to the end of our service uh, in, in Malaysia, and the question was, where now? But in 1988, an interesting thing started happening in our organization. I was with the International Mission Board of Southern Baptists, back then called the Foreign Mission Board. And we started asking the question, why are we limited to going to countries that only will give us visas? And that was a policy. You couldn't become a missionary to a country unless they would give you a visa. And so that left a lot of places without, without Southern Baptist missionaries. But that seemed to be the policy of a lot of mission agencies. And so guys like Ralph Winter and Keith Parks and, and Bill Bride and others started getting together. They started asking this question, why are we doing this? How, how are we going to fulfill the Great Commission if we allow the visa situation to keep us from sending people there? So I got contacted, as soon as I was expelled from Malaysia, I got contacted by this group, and they said, David, uh, we've been profiling the ideal person to work in, in uh, unreached countries that are hostile, and your name was the first name that popped out of the computer. And I said, you need to check your computer again. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm serious. I said, they want, we're going to make you a uh, non-residential missionary. I said, how can you be a missionary and non-residential? And it was, I mean, it just sounded nuts to me. And so I went, went to, back to Richmond, Virginia from, from Malaysia, and my wife and I, we spent, we spent eight weeks talking to people what they, what they thought it was going to be. And we began to help mold that understanding that it wasn't about the visa. It wasn't about being non-residential. It was about being creative and getting the gospel to people. And out of that, I thought, well, they're going to send me to China. I mean, China's been the, you know, the, everybody wants to go to China, it seems like. And they said, no, everybody can go to China. A lot of people go to China. We want to send you to the people group that's killed every missionary that's been sent to them for the last 120 years. <laughs> and I said, why me? He says, well, you, you've been in the military, you have the training, you have the background, you know, just all these kind of things. And, and I said, okay, we'll, we'll head that direction. And uh, so my wife and two kids who were 12 and 7 at the time, and and we packed up four bags, got on a plane, and we flew to India, not knowing where we were going to live or who we were going to meet. We didn't know anyone there. And we landed, and we, I found a place for the family to stay within a few days. And then I got on a train and headed into this area that, that was supposed to be a killer area. And it's an interesting area because the Bhojpuri people were where, is where Hinduism, Vedic Hinduism, was established among the Bhojpuri. Uh, Buddha was a Bhojpuri prince. And he was kicked out of the Bhojpuri area because he was too liberal. And Mahatma Gandhi, when he wanted to start the uprising against the British, he started it in the Bhojpuri districts. This whole area has a, has a history that's really impacted us all in some ways. Think about it. Buddhism and Hinduism 
Also, Jainism all came out of this one region and has gone around the world many times. I, I doubt if there's anyone in here who doesn't have a Buddhist friend or a Hindu friend or, or a workmate or even family members that are in that. So this is a very important area, but very, very conservative and very resistant to any outside ideas. Even when the Moors came to India, they came sweeping in from the north and they hit the Bhojpuri districts and they got stopped cold. That's the reason in, in India, Islam is only in the north. The Bhojpuri stopped them from getting into South India and that changed the whole future and history of India and pushed the Muslims more toward the west rather than to the south. So it's an interesting place, and, and I began to, to learn the culture and learn the language and went in with a, what I thought was a tourist visit. It turned out to be I had a permit to, to study, and I was able to uh, enroll in a doctoral program to study Sanskrit. Yeah, Sanskrit. Ask me how much Sanskrit I know. Uh, I forgot. <laughs> So, uh, but I, it allowed me to get in the country and stay. And, and so while I was working and traveling, I began to talk to Christians there. I began to recruit a team. And, and within 18 months, six of those team members had been killed. And we were expelled from the country. The only place I could relocate my family to was Singapore. It was the only country that would allow us to come in on a short-term visa. And then eventually we got a residence visa there. And I got my family settled in, got the kids in school, all those kind of things. And then I, I went to my office and for several months never turned the light on. I just said, God, I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, everybody thought I was a success and I'm a horrible failure. I've gotten people killed. I, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't, I don't want to be a missionary. I don't want to be an evangelist. I, I don't want to make disciples and other people. I just don't want to do this anymore. And just let me go back and run another business. I've been running businesses. Let me, let me go back and be an engineer company again. And, and God said, no, this is what I want you to do. Well, that made me pretty mad. I said, what do you mean that's what you want me to do? I mean, I, I, I've done everything I know how to do, and I failed. And God kept leaning on me and pushing on me, and finally said, all right, God, here's the deal. I'll make a deal with you. I won't watch television or read a book or a newspaper, anything for a year. All I will read is your word, but here's the deal. You've got to show me in your word how to make disciples, not simply telling me to make disciples. Do you ever feel that way? People keep telling you you need to make disciples, but they don't ever tell you how. Do you ever feel that way? And, and I started just voraciously reading the Bible over and over again. In that one-year period, I read the Bible almost six times. And things started coming together, verses I had never seen, except I'd read the Bible through before, but I just hadn't seen them, haven't, haven't really understood them. And, and one of those passages that, that came up, was in, in John chapter 6, verse 43 through 45. And Jesus is talking to a bunch of religious leaders, okay? That's who he's talking to. And he says, hey, you guys, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Did you hear that superlative? No one can come to Jesus 
unless the Father draws him. I go, now, wait a minute, God. I thought that's my job. Lifestyle evangelism. I'm supposed to live a life that draws people to Jesus. I'm supposed to have words that draw people to Jesus. I'm supposed to be drawing them to Jesus. And God says, no, that's not your job. That's my job. My job is to draw people to Jesus. Then, then he said, and then Jesus says, and I will raise them up at the last day. I said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I'm the evangelist. I'm the one that gets them saved. Yeah, you're involved, but you know, I'm the one that, that's involved in getting them saved. And, and God says, no, you're not. Your words don't mean anything. I've said a lot of words over the years. As a matter of fact, as, as a pastor, I, I established one of the fastest growing churches in North America. Took it over at, at 40, and in two years it was 400, and they fired me. No, I'm serious. They fired me. You know why they fired me? Because the last year of that time, I went to a bar every day. They were driving me to go to a bar. Not really. But, but I went, and I, and I went to the bartender. I said, look, guys, I know you have a happy time. You're really, really busy, and I know that people want to talk. I said, how about if I just sit over there in the corner, and anyone who wants to talk, you, you send them that way. That year, I led and baptized 200 people into the church by sitting in the bar. But, you know, Baptist pastors aren't supposed to sit in bars, so they, um, <laughs> they fired me. So, I, I mean, I, I knew the part about getting people to receive Jesus. I, I've been doing it for a lot. I mean, I was really good at manipulating stuff and making it happen. Then verse 45 says, It is written in the prophets, they will all, hear that superlative again, they will all be taught by God. Wait a minute. I spent six years studying Greek and Hebrew and Latin and Sanskrit and Hindi and, and, and Chinese and German and, 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 you know, and, and all the things that went along with those languages. And you're telling me, you're telling me that I'm not going to teach them? I mean, that's what I've been doing for the last few. I'm, I'm teaching in the seminary. I'm teaching at church. I'm preaching. I'm ministering. Wait, 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 wait. That's my job. And God says, no, it's not. I'm the one who teaches. And then it, he even makes it rougher. He goes on to say, everyone, hear that superlative again? Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to Jesus. Everyone who heard the Father and learns from him comes to Jesus. See, it's not, it's not enough just to hear. You have to learn. And the Greek sense of learning is, if you learn it, it means you do it. You're not just, you're not just hearing it and, and, and brushing it off. So I'm sitting there and I'm wondering, my word, what am I supposed to do? You know, I, I don't draw people to Christ. I don't get people saved. I can't teach them. And the only way they come to Christ is if they listen and learn to God. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe I do have a role. What if I build an environment where people can listen and learn from God? And so I began to pray about that and think through that. And, and there's, a, there's a lot of things that go with that we don't have time to look at this morning. But I went back to India 
By the way, I, I had to lose my old passport to do that. Funny thing, all four of our passports fell in the toilet and I had to go get new ones. But, but uh, you know, it's one of those really crazy accidents. Got back to India and I, I started talking to people about this and they said, you're nuts. I was invited to speak to a conference on evangelism. Started out with 300 people. By the third day, there were two guys left in the room. Seriously, they were getting up and walking out. And, and the two guys were left in the room and it's the first thing in the morning. I said, we might as well sit together. And I said, why are you here? And he says, I ride with him. And I turned to the other guy. I said, why are you here? He says, what you're saying makes sense to me. God has been convicting me ever since you opened your mouth. And he and I partnered up. And we started into this very district that had killed six people that we knew of, plus others, and had been in it for hundreds of years. And we just started providing a place for people to listen to God. We, we got audio Bibles and just said, hey, just hand out audio Bibles. We handed out 1,000 audio Bibles and saw 627 churches started. Think about that. No, no evangelist, just, just an audio Bible. And a guy went by every two weeks and said, replace the batteries in the player because these were poor people. They didn't have anything. And, and we began to realize the power of the Word of God. And in that process, God began to teach me that disciple-making is not about learning or memorizing a system it's not even a lot of hard work for us. It's about us providing a hospitable environment to be people of hospitality so that people can listen and learn from God. And before we knew it, in, in an eight-year period, we went from zero churches to 80,000 churches in an eight-year period. And now it's spread to every continent on the planet, except Antarctica and, the, and the, the penguins don't need it. But, but it it's, it's continues to spread. Right now my ministry is active in 62 countries, and we have over 72 movements going. Now, a movement for us is you've planted in the last year more than 100 churches four generations deep. So it's a sliding scale. We look, I mean, a movement stops. We look at your last year and you haven't planted 100 churches four generations deep. You stop being a movement. We currently have 72 of those movements going. And in the last uh, 10 years, we've planted over 40,000 churches in Muslim-only areas and in places that you hear the news, their names all the time, whether it's Syria or Lebanon or it's Iraq, Iran. It's, it's, it's all over the places around the world that are, that are Islamic in nature. And listen, listen. When you step back and let God do his job, all of a sudden making disciples becomes easy. You don't have to memorize anything. All you got to do is have people over for tea or go to their house. It's even better. My favorite church, my favorite church is, is, is a little church we started in San Jose among, you know, let's get this politically correct thing right here. Let's see, it's called undocumented aliens. That's the, that's the word. And, and we started among this, this family of undocumented aliens. Ended up 40 plus of them were in one family. And they came and, and we just provided an environment for them to listen to God. And, and part of our process is when they listen to God, say, go, go talk to your family and friends about what you've heard God say. 
And so they take off, and, and every week they were starting another group. And they had 17 groups going besides their own, and some of those groups were being baptized before the group that started them. Now, I don't know about you, that messed with my theology. Lost people studying the Bible on their own, getting other lost people to study the Bible on their own, and then being baptized, but the ones being baptized, the ones who started them are still lost. I mean, how do you figure that one out? <laughs> and, and we thought that was kind of a, an anomaly, but it's happening all over the world that way. Because it is God who calls them. It is God who saves them. It is God who, who teaches them, and they learn what he's saying, and they begin to obey it. And out of that process, we begin to see things just blossom over and over and over again. I was at a baptism in a very restricted country. I won't even say the name of the country because this is going out uh, over the airways. And stood and watched 500 people walk through a river and be baptized. 500 walk right through that river and be baptized in a place where a new church had, had never been started before. And, and we're seeing this all over the world, literally millions of people coming to Christ. So I, I get back now, and, and we, we had this start in India and say, well, well that's, that's an India thing. So we started in Southeast Asia and said, oh, it's a Watson thing. He can do it in India. He can do it in Southeast Asia. So then I went over to Central America, and I coached people to do it. I didn't, I didn't involve myself in it at all, and it started there. So, oh, it'll work in, it'll work in those, you know, that, that, that place that's got a lot of Catholics in it, but certainly it wouldn't work in Africa. So in 2003, I went to Africa, and, and in Africa, it has grown like crazy. It has spread all over Africa from Cape Town all the way up to Egypt. And we have... We have Pre-movements right now in Tunisia, places, if you, if you listen to the news where the terrorism strikes have been, we, all across North Africa, and they said, well, it'll work. It'll work among those Muslims who don't know Arabic, but, man, it won't work among Arabic Muslims. So a couple of years ago, I, I started learning Arabic, and I went over to the Arabic areas, and guess what? God's calling them, too. And, and they're listening, and they're learning. And what's more is... All they have to do is say, get our work group together. We got places, guys will go in and say, you know, uh, boss, uh, you know, we have a 15-minute break in the morning, a 15-minute break at, in the afternoon, and we got a 30-minute break for lunch. Can we just combine all of those so that we can have a meeting during the day? And the boss says, okay. And, and says, but if it causes any problems, we're out. He started the meeting, or let them start the meeting, Attendance at work went up. People were coming to the meeting, and, and they were just doing, listening to God. You know, here's the word. How do you understand it? What are you going to do about it? And then go tell your friends what you're learning. And out of that one little company, we saw hundreds of churches started. We had a lady who says, I have no time to start a church. So what do you mean you have no time to start a church? She says, well, I ride on the train two hours to work. I work eight hours. I ride on the train two hours back home to work. I do that six days a week. I said, what are you doing for the two hours you're on the train? She says, well, I'm just sitting there and reading. I said, why don't you start letting people listen and learn from God? Now there's three bogeys on that train, and they're called the church cars. 
and people are coming to church on a train while they go to work and they come home from work. Guess what? It's not just on Sunday. It's every day but Sunday. <laughs> every day but Sunday, twice on each one of those days. And the conductors stand there. People start to get on the, on the bogey and the, the conductors say, are you here for church? And they go, what? This is a church car. Three or four cars down if you don't want to go to church. <laughs> yeah. They crazy, crazy things. Eight-year-olds starting churches. 14-year-old girls who can't read or write any language starting churches. Old people starting churches. Wealthy people starting churches. Because now making disciples is not about what you know and about what you can, how you can manipulate people. It's about just making a place where people can listen and learn from God. And that's how you multiply disciples and you can do it. There's not a person in this room that can't make this happen and be very good at it in a very short period of time. And that's my challenge to you. That you'll think about how do you obey that go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them to what? Obey, obey all the commands of Christ. Thanks.